If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, where we put your questions on a big historical topic to a leading expert. Today's subject is the dissolution, and our expert is Dr Hugh Wilmot, lecturer in European Historical Archaeology at the University of Sheffield. Hugh is the author of a recent book called The Dissolution of the Monasteries, and he also wrote the cover feature for BBC History magazine's February issue, which is on sale now. As you'll notice, the format here is a bit different to usual, because this podcast was recorded live with a virtual audience, taking questions from the listeners as we were going along. If you want to be kept informed about similar live podcast recordings, then do sign up to our podcast newsletter. You can find out more about that if you go to historyextra.com forward slash newsletters. Fielding your questions is our content director, David Musgrove. First question, Hugh. Uh, simple one, uh, popular one on search engines. What was the dissolution of the monasteries? Well, it's not that simple, but <laughs> um, effectively, it simply put, the dissolution of the monasteries was the closure of the monasteries in the 1530s and the re- reversion of all their property and assets to the crown. Um, so really, we're looking at a complete change in religious landscape taking place at this time. And What are the dates? When did this happen? Um, The dissolution first happens in 1536, and it's remarkably rapid. Uh, Within four years, every single monastic house in the country has been closed, the last being Waltham Abbey in 1540. Okay, so, uh, and uh, this is in the reign of uh, King Henry VIII, of course. Of course, yes. Um, And it's worth saying, you know, that that's about 830 monastic houses. So it's a really staggering number. 
And uh, another question that comes up a lot on the on internet search engines is: Were the monasteries expecting it? <laughs> um, Certainly, probably not as it unfolded. I mean, there were certainly um, sort of earlier events of closure, uh, most famously under Cardinal Wolsey in the 1520s. He closed down 29 houses to found the sort of the establishment of colleges uh, to Oxford and Ipswich. So monastic reform and closure of, of houses happened in the past, but certainly never on this scale. And I don't think anyone, you know, probably not even the crown at the beginning, expected it to be quite so comprehensive. Okay, right. Let's just jump into uh, a few of our uh, reader and listener questions then. So, um, Jem Pierce on Twitter uh, asks, was Henry's motivation actually religious reform or more financial gain? I wish I could settle this one definitively. Historians have been arguing about this for 400 years. Um, I think it's somewhere between the two. Um, undeniably, there was an element of religious reform at the beginning. Um, you've got to bear in mind, you know, Henry VIII, for all his bad press, was a deeply Christian man. And this is, should be viewed as part of the wider Reformation process. But as the dissolution unfolded, clearly the financial gain became obvious to the crown. And that probably accelerated the speed of dissolution. And uh, this sort of leads on to this is a question from uh, Davy C.W., who's got a theory. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's not a unique theory, but Henry needed the church's wealth to fund the wars with France and Spain. So he created a divorce scenario where he could break with Rome, sack the monasteries and absorb their wealth. Um, has he got that right? I think there's I think there's an element to that. I don't think any historian or archaeologist would argue that Henry created the divorce situation. You know, he had a genuine desire to have a male heir, and that simply hadn't happened. So the divorce is kind of a separate issue. Um I think that the dissolution came about out of reform, but very quickly, the, you know, the money it generated, the income, the assets the crown gained proved extremely attractive. And of course, the wars with continental Europe were not going well. They were very expensive. So, of course, the dissolution came away to perpetuate that. Roger Luther, what do you think uh, Henry's actual religious beliefs were? Was religion just a cover for his wish to just uh, to get as much money, power as possible? So I suppose you've slightly answered that there, but um, what what's, have you got? Oh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd stress again the fact that, you know, Henry was a religious man. He considered himself until his death a Catholic. You know, he wasn't, you know, a Protestant in the way that his son Edward was. So there was certainly an, an element of, of reform, but also giving him the power over the church that he didn't previously have. OK, uh, we've got one here, which was what was popular sentiment to monasteries like at the time? So uh, I guess before the dissolution happened. I guess, I mean, it would have been very varied depending on who you are, what your situation was. I mean, if you were amongst the poorest in society, you would probably have looked quite, you know, well upon the monasteries. They would have provided charity and alms. If you were a wealthy landowner, you perhaps would have been jealous of the holdings of the monasteries. But, you know, I think in general, people viewed them relatively positively in terms of the sort of spiritual uh, provision they gave, as well as charitable. But of course, you know, as the Reformation unfolds, people start seeing the monasteries as symptomatic of the old religion and in need of reform. Right, let's get to some questions about the, the how. We've covered a little bit of the why there, but let's, uh, let's look at the how for a second. How was Thomas Cromwell involved in this process? Well, 
suddenly by, by the 1530s, when the dissolution is unfolding, Cromwell's in the position of being essentially the chief minister of Henry. Um, and he's very much the man behind devising the sort of the plan for the dissolution and for its enactments. So um, it's his agents that go out and visit the monasteries. It's him who's collecting information about the monasteries. And then ultimately, he's handling the process of the dissolution. So it's through actually through his meticulous record keeping the way the documents survive that we know so much about the dissolution because it was a highly organized efficient process so can you would you be able to detail sort of the process by which the uh, the, the dissolution happened what what stages did they go through well, again, it's part of the wider sort of reform of the church. So when Henry initially breaks from the church in Rome, um, they undertake an assessment of the value of the church and of its assets and its land, and that gets compiled um, into a great document. Um, and then from this... Um, the value of the monasteries is realised. Um, they then, in the 1536, there's the first act for the dissolution of the lesser monasteries. So those houses that have an annual income of less than £200 can be closed and the religious moved into alternative uh, religious institutions. And that's kind of the reforming side of the process. But then later on, the larger monasteries start getting targeted and closures happen there and you don't get the rehousing of the, the former monks and nuns. And that's really the sort of dis solution proper where you know all these houses have been closed permanently okay i've got a question here from hugh j riches on twitter who asks how accurate was the comperta monastica and you're gonna to have to explain what that is as well well, the Comperta Monastica is essentially a compilation of uh, commissioners' reports that goes to Cromwell, outlining the state of individual uh, monastic houses. So they're all visited by his Cromwell's agents, and and in a way, it's a bit like the sort of former bishops' visitations that took part, you know, place in previous centuries, where the state of the house would be assessed, the inmates are interrogated, you know, any wrongdoings or misdemeanors are reported, and this is all compiled together and given to Cromwell in a document. Jim Greenwood asks, we used to be told that Cromwell used Parliament to push forward his policy. If this remains true, why was there no general dissolution by Parliament for the larger monasteries? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the first act for dissolution in 1536 goes through Parliament and that gives sanction to close the smaller monasteries. It's only in 1539 you get a second act after most of the monasteries have already been closed. And that doesn't allow for the forced closure of the greater monasteries, but it allows their abbots to surrender the monasteries voluntarily. So th there is kind of legal basis, certainly for the first part of the dissolution. Then the second part of the dissolution, which has been termed by some historians sort of dissolution by coercion, uh, was with less legal basis. But of course, technically, um, heads of these houses were surrendering their houses voluntarily, at least on paper. Okay. Um... You've, you've, you've talked about this a bit before, but uh, it's a direct question from Julie. To what extent was Thomas Cromwell the instigator? Oh, I think he, he plays a, the key role in this. I mean, it's it's partly his religious zeal. He's very much a reformer in the reforming faction of court. So he's one who's very much pushing the king in this direction. Um, and then he implements it uh, so efficiently. I mean, whatever your feelings of the dissolution, its ruthless efficient, efficiency is, is something to be really wondered at. Um, so, I mean, without Cromwell, the dissolution could never have happened, certainly in this way and so rapidly and so effectively. 
Caroline Gillan asks, was there, were there many objections to the dissolution from the clergy and the public? Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> suddenly the, the, the clergy, those in monastic orders objected and petitioned Cromwell, but also wealthy nobles who'd been patrons of these houses, perhaps even where some of their relatives were buried, were petitioning the king, petitioning Cromwell to, you know, make certain houses exempt from closure. I mean, right up to 1540, the Duke of Norfolk is trying to save Thetford uh, Prior because his father is actually buried there and had only been buried there 20 years before. So you've got the most powerful peer in the country trying to prevent the closure of a house. So there was, a, there was an awful lot of resistance at all levels to this. Um, this is a good question uh, from John Edmund Hind. Were the monasteries corrupt? Um, yes, as in every aspect of life is corrupt. So there were good monasteries. There were monasteries that were very badly run. There were monasteries that were well run. There were individuals who were definitely corrupt within monastic institutions, but it would have been no different from any other aspect of medieval or 16th century life. Okay. Um, Susan Pickles, was there anything the church could have done to prevent the dissolution? Um, in short, no. Um, the king, particularly after the break with Rome, the king held absolute power. Um, and again, we might come on to this in a further question, but you know, there is popular revolt against the dissolution, um, you know, in the pilgrimage of grace and then in the Lincolnshire Rising as well. Um, and these are suppressed brutally. So effectively, there's nothing the church could have done. Okay. Um uh, sort of going back on the corruption thing, but looking at it from the other side of the uh, equation, from, uh, uh, sorry, I'm not sure, Eleia Yosefi, um, do you think Cromwell made up some of the things in the Valor Ecclesiasticus? And, and perhaps you should just remind us what the, uh, what the Valor was. Well, the Valor, no, the Valor is actually a very accurate record of income. Um, and, you know, the, the holdings of the, the monasteries and all ecclesiastical institutions. Um, in terms of the visitation reports that are sent to Cromwell on the state of the houses, there's been quite a lot of discussion about this, whether this was a deliberate smear campaign by Cromwell and his agents against the monasteries. And certainly, I'm sure if they found things to take issue with, they would have, you know, reported them with glee. But also, you know, it's often sometimes noted that houses were well run and actually that they, no fault could be found in certain monasteries. So I don't think it's fabricated, but I think where there was evidence, you know, that could be used against the monasteries, it was certainly sort of compiled and sent to Cromwell. Okay. Um, another good one from uh, Johan. Was there a long-term plan to, stop, uh, to abolish all religious houses in 1536, or did Henry just get more ambitious as he went along? Again, we, we, we will never know. Um, it's not documented as such. I think the consensus now amongst sort of uh, historians is that probably at the very beginning there wasn't a long-term plan to shut all the monasteries. It did start as a reform process and um, one where, you know, certainly, you know, less efficient, uh, smaller monasteries could be closed and their wealth taken. Um, I think it's just as the political events unfold incredibly rapidly you know between uh, sort of 1536 and 1539 that the plan evolves with that as the opportunity comes to seize more wealth um lionel barnes good, good question uh, were there differences in parts of england and wales to to what happened not particularly um 
there would be the difference would lie in that certain parts of the country tended to have sort of less wealthy monasteries. So if we're looking at Wales, the West Country, some of the Midlands, you know, these tended to have smaller houses, which perhaps were more likely to be closed first. Whereas in sort of North Yorkshire, where you have the great Yorkshire abbeys, these are very rich institutions, they survived longer. But but ultimately, it was a universal process across England and Wales. And, you know, over the course of four years, all of them were shut. And of course, uh, Revo Abbey, that one of these great Yorkshire abbeys, is uh, on the cover of the uh, of the magazine that uh, with the feature you've just written about a very dramatic looking uh, image. It is too. Um, just building on that, J. E. M. Crosby wanted to know when did the dissolution begin in Ireland? Was it concurrent with England and Wales? No, it's an entirely different process in Ireland and also Scotland, which had a later dissolution, and it was enacted in very different ways. Um, Although Ireland, or most of Ireland, is governed, uh, well, it's under English rule at this time, um, it's a very different different political situation, very different land ownership situation. So the dissolution happens at a slightly later date and in slightly different ways. Um, Robert Dyson, what happens to the monastic granges? And we need to explain what the granges are uh, to, to answer that question. Well, granges effectively are like large farms that are sort of all, you know, um, run by the monastery, sometimes tenanted out to secular occupiers. So they're all part of the land that's owned by the monastery. So we shouldn't just think of the monastery as the church and cloister. It's the whole land holdings that a house might own which would include granges, mills, um, industrial complexes, all of that reverts to the crown, as well as the actual monastic houses themselves. Okay, right. So uh, I'm just looking through. There's loads and loads of questions here. Thank you so much for all your questions. This is a a fantastic amount of questions. Um, We've kind of, we talked a bit about the the how and the why. Should we talk about the consequences a bit? And let's go back to some of the questions we had in to start with. S.P. Beale asks, how did local parishes react to the removal of all the services that monasteries provided? So perhaps you you might uh, answer that question uh, slightly by answering what sort of things the monasteries did provide for the local community. Well, they they could provide, you know, both direct and indirect services. So as I've mentioned, they provided charitable relief. Um, Hospitals were run by monastic institutions, that sort of thing. They would all go with the dissolution. Um, For some parishes, there might be even more sort of immediate effects because um, particularly um, parishes that were under the influence of Augustinian or Benedictine houses may not have had their own parish churches and quite a lot of them actually had rights to worship within the monastic church where the parish altar would have been kept in part of the monastic church. So come the dissolution and the removal of the monks or the canons, suddenly these parishes are left in a slightly strange situation, but they are still protected. They still retain rights to worship in the monastic church. So it led to this strange situation where sometimes you have monasteries where most of the monastic complex uh, disappears, but part of the monastic church still stays in parochial use. So it would have suddenly affected and created a very different experience for parishes in very different ways, depending on on the location they're in and the relationship they had with the particular monastery at that time. I'm I'm reminded of uh, Cartmel up in the Lake District where they had uh, the parish church within within the monastic buildings there and uh, famously the roof was taken off at some point and there's this legend that the uh, sort of the, the wooden benches inside have been uh, you can still see them but they're weathered because uh, because of all the rain that uh, that fell on them so that's a that's a nice place to uh, to visit um okay 
let's talk about uh, uh, the the, um, the consequence. What evidence is there for the short term and longer term impact of the dissolution on society from QMC history? This question is so um, you you dealt with that a little bit, but um, do you want to give us a bit more? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I I can't stress enough how did this short term impact on the poor and those who needed relief, charitable relief, um, you know, the provision of hospitals would have been immense. And we suddenly see a massive rise in vagrancy um, and sort of Tudor sort of uh, towns tend to get very concerned about what to do with the sort of growing amount of urban poor. So there are very real negative effects for those lower down in society. Also clearly very devastating uh, effects for those in religious orders. Um, but in the longer term, the dissolution created opportunities, not just for Henry VIII um, or even those in court, but for you know much wider sort of section of society who were able to purchase elements of monastic land, you know, even if it's just small parcels of land, and actually get access to sort of resources they wouldn't have been able to before the dissolution. So if we look over a sort of 50, 100 year period, we see the dissolution has a profound effect across society through that release of land and assets, um, you know, out of the hands of the church. So did it quite dramatically change the the rural landholding structure then? Oh, oh, very, very much. Um, people tend to focus on the nobility, and of course, the nobility are buying up large amounts of uh, monastic land, but also for the more local gentry who, you know, hadn't had. They may have had the wealth, but they didn't have the opportunity to expand their holdings. So we see the rise of county gentry families right across England and Wales using the dissolution as a way of expanding their land holdings, often within specific counties or areas of counties. Um, looking at the urban context here, we've had a, a question from Professor Keith Ray, who wants to know what was the long-term impact on urban communities of the, suppress- of the suppression of the urban friary. So you've been talking, uh, uh, in a sense, more about rural uh, life, but um, but yeah, that's a that's an interesting uh, way to look at it, isn't it? What, what happened in towns? No, that's an extremely good question because most most studies tend to focus on the rural monasteries. But of course, the urban friaries were sort of critical to the infrastructure of towns. And when they disappear, again, the friar's mission was much more sort of evangelical. It was much more to do with sort of ministering to the poor, the urban poor. So with the removal of the friaries, that creates real problems in towns. It also creates sort of problems in terms of town planning. We get large open areas in towns suddenly becoming wasteland. And in some towns, such as sort of Newcastle and other sort of towns outside of London and the southeast, some of these urban spaces, which were formerly occupied by friaries, remain unoccupied for two, sometimes even 300 years after the dissolution. And it's only really in the industrial period when the towns are expanding that this this land is put back into more productive use. So there would be a very visual impact on the townscape uh, with the removal of the friaries. Um, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, yeah, as you say, you don't... Uh, don't... Oh, I sees that much better. Um, you mentioned earlier the impact on uh, on the on the monks themselves, on the clerics. Uh, Dawn, Dawn Burgoyne asks, oh, how many monks were displaced and where did they go? What happened to them? Right. Uh, c- calculating the number of people who were in religious orders at that point is a very difficult, uh, <laughs> a difficult task. But so I'm not going to try and put a figure on how many there were. But, you know, you're talking about thousands, uh, you know, if there are 830 approximately monastic houses, you know, that 
that would be at least probably eight to 10,000 uh, as a conservative estimate of, of people who are suddenly being displaced. Now, it very much depends what kind of monastic you are. Um, mo- you know, we tend to think of monks as, you know, <laughs> as being monks, but of course there were canons, there were ordained priests. Now, people like that could have gone into sort of new vocations within the church. If a monastery um, surrendered uh, voluntarily, of course, all the religious were pensioned off for life and they received an income based on the wealth of the house um, and their position within that house. So some of them would have been sort of fairly comfortably off. But perhaps if you're female, uh, nunneries tend to be much poorer. Um, You know, you would have found yourself in real hardship with a very, very small pension. So there's probably great vari- uh, variation in what happened to individual uh, sort of, uh, of members of, of these houses after the dissolution. Okay, and you, you mentioned there if you, um, if you uh, voluntarily did what was after, asked of you, uh, James, Berry, uh, sorry, James Barry has a question here, what was to be gained from the execution of Abbot Whiting in Glastonbury, who, uh, who was by then an old man? And that's a, it's a very interesting story, isn't it, what happened at Glastonbury? So uh, he, he obviously didn't surrender voluntarily. No, I mean, yes, I mean, we've got a very few cases um, where it people came to a slightly stickier end. Um, Initially, several monasteries were implicated in the Pilgrimage of Grace, the uprising against Henry VIII, and their abbots and priors were executed. Um, Later on, several houses where the the monks refused to surrender, particularly Carthusians, um, there were executions of individual monks there. And of course, the abbot of Glastonbury is a very symbolic figure. Um, Even though he's an old man, he's the head of the richest abbey in the country. Um, and therefore his sort of execution for, for resisting is, is sending out a very powerful message that the king has ultimate control. Even the richest abbeys in the land cannot stand up to him. So, you know, whilst to our eyes it, that's a brutal, pointless act, it's a very strong political statement. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So... If I was being provocative, you could say that the dissolution actually preserved for us, in albeit in ruined form, much of our sort of medieval art, well, architecture at least, in a way that doesn't happen in continental Europe in some places. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Feel desperate. Do we know? Um, did any did any monks after it after the dissolution become beggars? Do we? You, you mentioned that some of them had uh, had a tough time. Is any of them sent into penury like that? Um, 
almost certainly. I mean, again, we don't tend to have individual records of what happens to sort of named monks or nuns afterwards. I mean, we, we, we sometimes still have records of how long they're collecting their pension for. And some of them lived, you know, for sort of 20 years after the dissolution and they're still collecting their pension. Um, so it's probably anecdotal to sort of suggest that, you know, there's lots of sort of former monks begging on the streets. And it's probably not as simple as that. But I mean, I'm sure that, you know, many of the former religious may have found themselves in very desperate circumstances um okay jan tyshurst asks um a, a good question how did people who were unable to seek help from the monasteries cope were there any secret monasteries she asks <laughs> um not secret monasteries because in a way <laughs> monasteries are only one aspect of religious life so you know worship in the parish church carried on pretty much as normal with a few changes under Henry VIII um, but you know the charitable provision is the one thing that would have been missing instantly and we see communities setting up their own uh, sort of provision on a limited scale so you get the foundation of secular hospitals at this period something else that the religious provided was education um, and of course with the monasteries going the monastic schools are closed and we see, particularly in towns, corporations sometimes buying up bits of former monasteries and setting up free schools or grammar schools as well. So you see more communities responding in a limited way um, to, sort of, to sort of cater to the, sort of the, the black hole that's been left in social provision. But, it, you know, it takes another sort of century, century and a half before anything, you know, that's similar to what was in place before uh, comes back again in terms of sort of welfare, education, that sort of thing. Um, you mentioned the pilgrimage of grace earlier, and there's a couple of questions uh, here about that. Just just wanting to know what was the role, what was the pilgrimage of grace, and what was its role in this story. Well, the Pilgrimage of Grace was effectively a sort of popular uprising. It wasn't a violent uprising, um, and it was in part stimulated by the closure of monasteries in the north of England and the resentment of local populations uh, with you know with that i mean there were all probably all sorts of other uh, issues that came into play with local politics alienation of the north that sort of thing but it led to a kind of popular non-violent revolt in which the church was also involved um and essentially was to try and petition the king because you know people were thought the king was being ill-advised didn't really know what was going on and it was kind of a movement that tried tried to sort of uh, contact the king and try to sort of make him see reason but it's brutally suppressed primarily by Charles Brandon who's, who's the king's sort of chief agent in this um, and essentially uh, after the pilgrimage of grace after this sort of popular uprising we see the rapid expansion in the dissolution and the closure of houses everywhere and you know even large houses. Um, just a, a couple of questions on uh, on physical impact. Edward Fennell, uh, what was the motivation for the physical destruction of the monastic buildings themselves? Was it just people wanting to get hold of stones and stuff? <laughs> um, well, actually, the monasteries, the, 
they they probably would have remained largely intact for quite some time. I mean, the fact that we've got so many ruins today tells you that they're not wiped off the map. Um, because the actual monastic buildings, they were a tangible as uh, asset. So at the very base level, you could asset strip them, take all the removable, valuable things, even the stone. But actually, they were useful to be put to sort of new purposes. So we see many monasteries, probably the majority, actually just repurposed as buildings into new sort of uh, things such as domestic housing some go into agricultural purposes some in the city of london or some of them are used to actually house high temperature industries and that sort of thing so the it's very rare that you actually get a monastery that's destroyed or wiped off the map or anything like that. Um, so they would have been visible in the landscape for a long time afterwards, even to the present day. Okay. Um, and uh, aside from the buildings, what, what else did uh, the monasteries have in them? Uh, so Sonia Skipper asks here um, a, a bit of a leading question. Why were so many illuminated manuscripts wantonly destroyed? So you might want to um, just explain what happened to the monastic libraries a bit. Well, this is this is a good one because this is another one of those sort of common slight misnomers that suddenly the monastic libraries were all just destroyed. Part of this goes down to a uh, contemporary account by John Bale, which I think is rather fanciful, where he was suggesting that people were using monastic uh, uh, manuscripts uh, basically in their toilets. Um, yes, clearly some, you know, Books were destroyed, books were lost, many more books were saved. The royal collection was very much enhanced uh, by John Leyland, who collected books from monasteries, and probably many, many books would just be sold. Um, most of the assets, most of the wealth of the monasteries was not destroyed. It was kind of either recycled or sold on. So we know many English books end up in continental Europe um, and that sort of thing. So there isn't a mass burning of libraries and books, or very rarely, probably, that happened. But books became displaced, they became dispersed, and that sort of thing over time. But we still have very many of the books from the monastic libraries in various collections, both in this country and around the world. Um, and yeah, you mentioned John Leyland there. He's an interesting figure, and there's a very good feature on our website, historyextra.com, by uh, James Carley, which uh, which uh, investigates what uh, Leyland did. So uh, any listeners might want to have a look at that and see uh, see what uh, what he got up to. Um, leading from that, Gene Scaife asked, was a lot of medical knowledge um, lost specifically because of the dissolution? Now, from what you just said about the the, uh, the the monastic libraries, perhaps not so much, but in terms of actual sort of medical knowledge that was distributed to, to people on the ground, was that, was that a, a big issue? I, d I don't think medical knowledge was lost because, you know, the church is still there. Um, you've, you've still got the wealth of knowledge, the wealth of expertise of the church, as well as secular people. Perhaps what was lost was the application of that knowledge through through hospitals, through healthcare that the, the monasteries had provided. But um, I don't think there was sort of some, there wasn't as if uh, we were sort of sent backwards uh, in time in terms of knowledge uh, that remained intact. Catherine Deer asks, um, uh, did Cromwell really end up with a basement full of relics that he'd taken from the monasteries? I, <laughs> I think that Hilary Mantel's um, slight licence there. I mean, I have no idea 
what Cromwell did with most of the relics. He could have had a secret basement where he uh, stored them. We know some relics are burnt publicly um, in London and elsewhere, as an example. But it is true, relics were collected up. They were generally sent to Cromwell or at least to London, um, and presumably they were disposed of in some way. So, um, you know, the relics were targeted, they were taken out, they they were sort of sometimes publicly debunked in front of uh, local communities and usually removed or destroyed or burnt. Okay. Um, uh, I, I, I can't remember from Hilary Mantle whether she talks about this. This might also lead from 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 her work. Um, Rosemary Rudette, I'm sorry, your your surname's cut off halfway through, so I'm not sure what the second bit is. But uh, what role did the Court of Augmentations play, and especially Richard Rich? Do you have a an answer to that, Hugh? Oh, absolutely. No, no, the the Court of Augmentations is 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 really important because that is the organisation that is responsible for uh, uh, supervising this newly found land and wealth. Uh, it, it organises the sales uh, of land or the leases of land. So it's there to generate income for the crown. Um, so it's critical to the whole process of the dissolution. The, sort of, the shutting down is just the first bit. Um, for the crown to realise its wealth, it has to manage that resource, um, initially through leasing the land, but then through selling it. And that the court is, is the organisation that does that, again, with ruthless efficiency. Okay, and Richard Rich, what was his role in that? Was oh he- well, he, well, he was the protege of Cromwell. He he was active in the court. Um, uh, you know, so he's one of the key players. He's he's one of Cromwell's men. Um, who, who rise up under Cromwell's uh, uh, sort of uh, tutelage and and ultimately outlives Cromwell too. He hasn't got a particularly gleaming reputation, has he, Richard Rich? Uh, I I I. No. <laughs> and I think he probably wasn't a terribly pleasant man, but, you know, he was a man of his time, is perhaps the way to look at him. Of course. Um, you've, you've talked a bit about nuns earlier and uh, and how they might have suffered uh, more than nuns. But uh, so Melissa Kane asks, um, how did the dissolution affect nuns in comparison to their male counterparts? Can you offer a bit more on that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, obviously, it would be initially just as devastating because, you know, nunneries are affected as much as, as male houses. Um, but of course, you know, as I think I mentioned before, the nunneries tended to be poorer institutions anyway. So the pensions to nuns would have been far less generally. And also, you know, your prospects, particularly if you're slightly later in life of, of, of being female, going out of religious order into secular world, your prospects in the secular world at that time as a female, particularly an older female, you know, wouldn't be good. You know, there'd be many normal options would be shut to you. So I suspect that, you know, the former female monastics would have have suffered far more than their male counterparts. Um, There's a very interesting question here from uh, Rihanna Imona, uh, who says, do you believe that the positive effects of the dissolution, like getting the support of the nobles by giving them church lands, were outweighed by negative effects of the dissolution, like the rebellions, uh, such as the Pilgrimage of Grace? So I suppose she's, in terms of positive and negative, she's talking about positive and negative for Henry VIII there. But what's what's your, do you have a, a response to that? Well, I guess it's slightly subjective. And I th- I think for Henry VIII, it's overwhelmingly positive, um, not just financially. I mean, you know, bear in mind, 
this, this, this is a sovereign who is an exceptionally poor sovereign compared to his European counterparts, not just in, in wealth, but actually in land holding, that sort of thing. So the dissolution provides him the opportunity to aspire at least to some of his continental counterparts. But in terms of dis- redistribution of land and wealth, Certainly in the longer term, you could perhaps argue the dissolution was a positive thing. Now, it's, I'm not saying it's an equitable redistribution amongst the whole population, but um, it certainly allowed sort of middling sorts um, in sort of late Tudor sort of society to, you know, to, to grow, expand and that sort of thing. So, you know, any historical event, it's hard to say if it's good or bad, but I would say it's kind of a mixture um and building from that guy whitehouse uh, asked and this is something you talk about in your feature in the magazine uh, sometimes the dissolution is portrayed as an act of cultural vandalism which has left the country poor in some sense so do you, do you think that's fair sort of building on what you've just said um i i don't like the cultural vandalism tag i mean obviously the dissolution resulted in the loss of what you could argue is a lot of great medieval art architecture art that sort of thing but there again you look to continental europe and the Baroque did pretty much the same to most monasteries there. So, uh, you know, we wouldn't be if we were, if the dissolution hadn't happened, and you know, if we had monasteries continuing up to the modern day, we wouldn't have the Revo abbeys, the Fountain abbeys that we do, because they would have been transformed in the seventeenth, eighteenth, and nineteenth centuries into completely unrecognisable institutions. So, if I was being provocative, you could say that the dissolution actually preserved for us, in albeit in ruined form, much of our sort of medieval art, well, architecture at least in a way that doesn't happen in continental Europe in some places. That's an interesting take. Um, here's, here's, here's a good question, building on from that a bit. Again, Michael Booth, um, did Mary Tudor attempt to revive monasticism in England? Only ex- in an extremely limited way. Um Mary only accedes to the throne. Um, Part of her negotiation uh, with her nobles is that she won't try and take back monastic land because everyone in court, all the nobility without exception, had benefited uh, from gaining monastic land. So it's made very clear at the start of her reign she can't, she's not going to take this land back, otherwise she'd have been on the throne for 10 minutes. Um, what she does try to do is um, reopen a couple of institutions. So Zion is one of these, and this is just because this is a, a monastic house that's still in royal ownership. Um, so there is a very limited um, attempt to reintroduce some uh, monastic communities, but it's you know very short-lived and obviously doesn't survive uh, into Elizabeth's reign. Um, you introduced the, the European perspective in uh, in your answer just just now on the previous question. Uh, William Falstick asks, how did the dissolution affect relations with other European powers, and did Rome consider reacting to this loss of power and prestige in English lands? Well, yes, um, clear, clearly Rome, the papacy, are unhappy is perhaps an understatement with this and of course it's seen as heretical what is going on um so quite clearly the church in rome is very dissatisfied 
attitudes across continental Europe would have varied widely. Because bear in mind, you know, probably half of sort of continental Europe is undergoing some form of reformation as well. So, you know, from Scandinavia, northern Germany, even at this time, the Protestant movement is gaining a lot of political strength in France. And it's only in the counter-reformation that France comes, you know, solidly Catholic country again. So it's not a unique thing to England. And indeed, other continental countries go through periods of dissolution of monasteries. Um, it's just what makes England and Wales different is the, is the speed and the fact that closure took place just over four years. Um, there's a few questions along this vein, but I'm just going to pick this one from uh, Hilary Field, who asks, um, did Henry VIII ever make any sort of statement on the suffering he had caused by closing the monasteries? Was he aware of any suffering among the local populace? Um, certainly, I'm not aware of a, any statement that he would have made per se to that degree. But there again, you probably wouldn't expect the monarch to really make a statement about that. Um, you know, within his mindset, that's that's his prerogative as the head of the church. So whether he was aware of the, the full extent of suffering or inconvenience or whatever, I, I wouldn't be able to say. But it's not a surprise that we don't get much of a response. Um, few more, if you've still got a few minutes, there's, there's loads here. Um, Roger Luther asks, I think he's already asked a question, but, uh, but another good one here. Thanks, Roger. Um, is the growth of grammar schools in Tudor times in any way a reaction to the loss of teaching in the monasteries? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, having said that, Henry VIII didn't recognise any of the problems. Actually, one area where there is a sort of small, very limited attempt to sort of mitigate against this is through the establishment of grammar schools and this is an initiative initially under Henry and continues under Edward as well, that you do get the establishment of a very comparative, li comparatively limited number of grammar schools um, at this time, some of which are quite short-lived as well. So there is a recognition, you know, amongst the crowd, you know, from the crown that education is something that is going to suffer. But um, that having been said, you know, that, that's a relatively limited um, aspect, I think, um, sort of concomitant to that, Tony Shaw asked, do you think the poor laws emerged as a result of the dissolution? Um, I suspect not. Not. Well, no. Uh, I mean, I, certainly the, the poor laws themselves did not, but, you know, certainly civic regulations and civic restrictions on a local level did. So you, you suddenly see the appearance of sort of controls against vagrancy and that kind of thing brought in by, by city or, or civic authorities, specifically due to the numbers of poor in urban areas in particular that seems to increase following the dissolution. Um, okay. Uh, Julie asks, um, you may not have read this, have you read uh, uh, C.J. Samson, I think it is, uh, novel Dissolution? Are you familiar with the work of C.J. Samson? I, I, I read it quite a long time ago, so not the, the details anymore. But... So you're probably not going to be able to answer the uh, the second clause, did you find the portrayal of the di dissolution convincing? I suppose on a wider point, is there any historical fiction that, uh, that, that gets to the nub of the dissolution that you're aware of? Well, I... I think, I mean, certainly Hilary Mantel's 
sort of painting of Cromwell, the man, I think is 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 fantastic because she she presents him as a much more rounded character rather than a two dimensional criminal, which kind of was the traditional way of looking at it. In terms of the actual dissolution, what happens to the monks themselves? I think that's the novel uh, to be written. Um, because I, I certainly haven't come across a good novel that takes the monk's eye perspective of the dissolution itself. And that would be perhaps one to, for somebody to write if they've got some spare time at the moment. <laughs> um, and what about um, non-fiction? Obviously, your book is, is excellent. What, what sources should people um, look at if they want to find out a bit more about, uh, about this story? Well, um, any anyone who who's interested in monastic history in England and Wales, of any, of, from any perspective, uh, the work of David Knowles, um, you know, even though old, is is excellent as finding out about monasticism in Britain uh, and that sort of thing. I mean, the, there's obviously historical works. I mean, for, I'm actually an archaeologist, and I think some of the archaeological work that's taken place is some of the more interesting. So there's works by archaeologists such as Glyn Kopak, who's actually excavated many of these sites, uh, which have, you know, went through the dissolution and then changes afterwards as well. So there's, there's, you know, and perhaps the best way to really sort of learn about the dissolution is go and visit many of these abbeys and, and priories that still survive. Because even though the, you may see medieval ruins, when you look at them more carefully, you'll see things that happened at the dissolution. You'll see things that happened afterwards. You can see how they're transformed into new kinds of institutions often. So I think getting out and about and exploring is one of the best ways. Uh, though of course listeners should be mindful that government regulations are that you don't go anywhere at the moment <laughs> but uh, uh, once once COVID's over then yes absolutely yes. Um, Hales Abbey is just down the road from me which is uh, which is a belter that's a that's a good one to visit um, I'm just thinking there's a couple I'm not sure if we've done these so um, just tell me if, if we have that just a couple to finish up um, do, do we know how much money specifically Henry VIII's coffers were um, augmented by as a consequence Oof. of the uh, dissolution? <laughs> that's that's a really difficult question to answer. Um, uh, essentially, we know um, that the income of the monasteries at the dissolution was somewhere there. So their annual income of all the monasteries was somewhere in the range of um, 130,000 uh, pounds. Um, so if you're trying to work out what was the value of the monastic land, uh, you can estimate the value of the, of the monastic estate at 20 years, it's a uh, rate of 20 years, it's annual income. So a real ballpark sort of figure would be about three million pounds in the 16th century. That assumes that all the land is sold for the money to go to the crown, but and then that doesn't take into account all the things the crown had to pay, like the the monks' pensions. So you know it's an, it's a huge amount of money. Quite working out what three million pounds is in today's money is a very difficult thing to do because uh, you know uh, converting those kind of things, those sums, is, is is very difficult. But I think the way to look at it is, I mean, it, it's it's. It's kind of the equivalent of, of of some of the sort of government spending that's been going on in the last eighteen months or twelve months in this country. It's that's that level of 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 wealth or expenditure. So it's a huge it's a huge amount. 
And there are a couple of questions which I've, I've lost now, but uh, I, I remember them. Uh, just uh, basic people asking uh, how much, uh, how far was Thomas Cromwell himself enriched? And, and perhaps you could just remind us what happened to, to Cromwell. Oh, well, I mean, Thomas Cromwell is no different from many other people who are at court. They use the dissolution as an opportunity to gain property. One of the misnomers is that Henry VIII actually gave away land or you know, and sort of gambled it and that sort of thing. Um, that that didn't happen. Um, you know, even those who are well positioned had to buy or initially lease or buy the land. So, but Cromwell, you know, he he acquires a number of sites. Uh, perhaps the most famous is Lewis Priory, uh, which he sets about destroying to create um, as a house for his son. So he does well out of it, but of course not for very long, because uh, he very quickly, very shortly after the dissolution, he falls foul of court politics, and particularly the Duke of Norfolk, who's his sort of kind of arch enemy, um, and he ends up being executed. So um, not directly as a result of the dissolution, but uh, Cromwell doesn't survive long to uh, to bask in his gains. But, you know, his, his family, his son, uh, continues to inherit land and that sort of thing. So the Cromwell family aren't, aren't they don't fall with, with Thomas Cromwell himself. OK, and then let's just do, uh, let's just do this, this last one uh, to finish up. Guido Rowe asks, do you think that the dissolution was a step towards building a sense of nationhood in Tudor England? And uh, it's got a follow-up. In what way can the break with Rome be likened to Britain's break with the EU? So, okay. Uh, um, <laughs> go, go, go carefully on the, on the second point. No, no, no. I, mean, I, I think, you know, objectively, the dissolution allowed, allowed England to change in ways it couldn't have changed if, if it hadn't have happened. Um, I'm not sure it created nationhood in, in that sense, um, in that, you know, that that's very much created probably by later Elizabethan politics as much as anything else at this time. Um, I, I don't think you can draw the, the connection between sort of European Union and the church because it, it's a very different uh, situation. Um, and of course, you know, the church is addressing one, a very different kind of spiritual need as well. So um, I don't think there's a connection there. But suddenly the dissolution allowed English land ownership to change. You could argue, I mean, I'm not suggesting I would, but you could argue this is kind of a point in the nascent capitalist um, journey um, that, you know, you're getting coming into private ownership or this land that had been held in common by the church. So it certainly stimulated what was to happen for at least a century or two centuries afterwards. Is there anything you'd like to say sort of in conclusion, any sort of key points or understandings on the dissolution everyone ought to be aware of or um, anything, that you, anything you particularly stress in your book that people perhaps ought to, ought to, ought to think about? I mean, I think the points I'd stress is that, you know, as, as in you know in in the the title of the article, uh, you know this this is not just an act of vandalism. It's not just about Henry VIII um, and his divorce and that kind of thing. This is part of a real religious sort of reform that's taking place, and also the dissolution tends to get characterised as something that happens in the 1530s, which of course it does, but its implications carry on really for many, many generations to come. So the monasteries are not wiped off the map. You know, they get 
evolve, they get changed, and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, the sort of social processes that start at the dissolution, things that Cromwell or Henry could never have thought about or probably didn't care about, carried on through the rest of the 16th century, really probably up to the Civil War. That was Dr. Hugh Wilmot. His book, The Dissolution of the Monasteries, is published now by Equinox Publishing. Thanks to everyone who attended that live recording and sent in their questions. And do sign up to our podcast newsletter for details of any future live podcasts that we put on. You can read Hugh's feature on the dissolution in BBC History Magazine's February issue. That's on sale now and also includes features on The Blitz, Henry VI and Sutton Who. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Jenna Dittmar on medieval violence.